Everyone, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 49 is where we'll be at this morning as we continue our series, our Advent series, walking through the gospel according to Isaiah and looking at in Isaiah how Jesus is being revealed again and again and again, how Jesus is being pointed to again and again and again, and how often that we see in Isaiah this pull forward, this, this bigger promise that is out there in waiting and saying that your Messiah is coming, that the problems, the, 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 the lack of faithfulness, the, the difficulties, the adversity, the suffering, all of those things that you are facing now will have their um, healing in Jesus and pointing us towards Jesus. And this morning in Isaiah 49, we're going to look at just the first seven verses um, in Isaiah chapter 49, looking at this song of the servant, this servant that is being revealed in Isaiah chapter 49, and looking at what I believe that this servant being revealed to be as Jesus, as the one who is to come and to reconcile not only the nation of Israel back to God, but all nations to God who would turn to him in repentance um, and in faith. And this morning, my, my kind of my theme tonight is, or this morning is, it's bigger than you know. It's bigger than we know. Like this, this, this idea of this song of the servant, this one that is being revealed here in Isaiah 49 is infinitely bigger than we can ever begin to comprehend. And the calling that's being placed on this servant is, is bigger than even we would think initially as being revealed in the book of Isaiah. It's far bigger than that. And the victory and the triumph and the salvation that is being secured by this servant is infinitely bigger than we can ever imagine. And so when we read through Isaiah 49, we can't even begin to comprehend all that God is doing to reveal himself not only to the nation of Israel, not only to the immediate hearers of Isaiah's prophecy, but also to us this morning and also to the very ends of the age and the very ends of the earth. Let me read for us Isaiah chapter 49. We are not in Acts 6. Somebody changed my Bible to Acts chapter 6. I wonder who that was. Um, for that. So set me up right out of the gate, man. Golly, not cool. Isaiah chapter 49. I'll get there. Thanks for being patient. Isaiah chapter 49, the first seven verses says this. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me like a polished arrow, and his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be a servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my, nation, my salvation may reach to the end of the earth." Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. 
This morning, I want us to reveal to us that this servant is Jesus, the one that is to come, the Messiah that is to come, the Emmanuel that we heard about back in Isaiah chapter 7, what we heard about last week in Isaiah chapter 9, about wonderful counselor and mighty God and everlasting father and prince of peace, the one that the government will be on his shoulders, the one that his reign will have no end, that peace will have no end to it, that this is Jesus, and that through this servant Jesus— we can know our true identity, we can live out our calling, and we can see the triumph that God promises to us. And all of these are bigger and truer than we know. They're bigger and truer than we give credit for in our lives. As we celebrate Christmas and all the things that surround Christmas and all of the wonderful things and the sights and the sounds and the smells and all of those things and remember the birth of Jesus coming to us in the form of a baby, we need to lean into who we are. We need to step into the bigness of the calling that God has placed on our lives, into the bigness of Jesus, so that when the things around us don't seem to be working out the way that we thought they should work out, we can continue in our calling, trusting that God will make all things right in the end. And the confidence that we have in that is that Jesus has come. The promise that we see in Isaiah chapter 49 has come uh, fulfilled, at least in part, has come fulfilled. The servant has come. The servant has been born. The servant has lived perfectly. The servant has died. The servant has been raised from the dead. The servant is seated at the right hand of the Father. The servant is waiting for his father to say, go back and get my kids and bring them home to me. And this is the joy that we have. And this is what we celebrate this morning. Again, as we've talked about before, it's, we don't always just like to kind of jump into passages of Scripture. Um, there's, there's not, it's not a, a great way to understand Scripture at times because you can easily take things out of context. I remember uh, one of my seminary professors used to teach this in this way and show us the difficulty and the danger of that, that he would reveal the verse where Judas um, uh, killed himself and, and, would, and hung himself from there. Then he would have us read that one verse and then have another verse that we just read out of context context where Jesus said, go and do likewise. He said, well, it's not good for us to kind of pull things right out of the verses. Nobody got that at all. Thanks, Liam. Liam, you're on my side this morning. I appreciate that. Liam's paying attention. appreciate that. And we see, so it's difficult for us. It's dangerous for us to just pull something out of context without understanding what's going on. In Isaiah chapter 49, we've kind of built up in Isaiah that a good portion of Isaiah is God coming to his people and judging them. In revealing to them that they have gone astray, that they're not following after him and pleading with them to come back. Isaiah is the prophet that has come to plead them to come back and say, God sees what you have done. We see in Isaiah 49 that they are in captivity. They're in exile at this point. We read in the previous chapter, Isaiah 48 verses 10 and 11. This is God speaking. He says, behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. So what's happening in the nation at this time? They're giving God's glory to another. And so God must respond. And he's responding by allowing another nation to remove them from their comfort, to remove them from their land, to bring them into the furnace of affliction, as God says here, to help them to see the error of their ways. 
to see that God really is all that he says that he is. He really can do all that he says that he will do. And God is desperately um, passionate about his own glory. Will not share that with another. So we find ourselves with Israel at this point in time, with Judah at this point in time, that they are, they are being set aside for this. They're walking through discipline be what God is doing for them. But at the end of Isaiah, we see the graciousness of God being revealed over and over and over again. In the last several chapters of Isaiah, it is one promise after another of all that God is going to do, of one he is going to send, of a Messiah who's going to come, of a, a rescuer who is going to come to make all things right and to set all things right. And we see this in Isaiah chapter 49, that even in their furnace of affliction, God is demonstrating graciousness to his people by saying, I have not forgotten you. I have not turned my back on you completely. Though you are suffering now, I am sending one to you who will rescue you, not just from physical exile, but from exile for all time, in all things, physical and spiritual exile. But who is this particular message for? If we read through this book of Isaiah, you'll see it's for all kinds of different people, specifically um, for the nation of Israel, for the nation of Judah, lots of different places, all kinds around. But this one is, is different in some ways. Isaiah 49, as it opens up, as we look in verse 1 of Isaiah 49, this speaker in Isaiah 49 says, listen, it comes to the forefront. It says, listen to me, coastlands, and give attention, you peoples, from afar. God does have a message for his people in this moment, but it's a message that is far bigger than just for his people at this particular time. It is a message for all people. It is a message for all people in all places. It is a big message. It is for everyone to hear. It is hope and it is peace and it is joy and it is security that is not just for those who have been set aside as the nation of Israel, Judah, in this particular moment. It is for all peoples. That this Messiah, this servant is to come, is for all peoples. And I love that this chapter opens up this way and tries to get the attention of all peoples. So that all will know that God is good. That all will know that God is glorious. So that all will know that God deeply cares for them. This morning I want to share with you three things about this servant that I think definitely applies to us as well. It is not only true of the servant, but it's true of us. We're going to look at the identity of the servant this morning. We're going to look at the calling of the servant. And then finally, we're going to look at the triumph, the identity, the calling, and the triumph of the servant. Let's look at first the identity of the servant. Verse 1 continues on as it grabs attention to the entire world, to all that can hear. Verse 1 continues to go on and says, The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. Now, I believe, and we'll talk through this in just a little bit, I believe in the context of Isaiah 49 that we can make a pretty good case that the servant is Jesus in this case. That it's not Isaiah who is speaking here. It is not the prophet who is saying these things about himself. That it's not Israel, the nation, speaking these things about themselves. It is Jesus who is speaking these things. 
I give confidence to that because of the way that this servant is described. That's described in other ways in Isaiah that point very clearly to Jesus. I have confidence in that because it seems odd that Israel would be calling itself back to God when that hasn't worked at all in Isaiah, that someone outside of Israel needs to be calling Israel back to themselves. And we see it opened in verse 1 here that the Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. What we need to see about Jesus in this moment and to see this is that Jesus' purpose and calling came long before his physical birth. That God had a purpose for his son, that before the cosmos even came into being, before anything was breathed into being, before God said, let there be light, there was God in perfect triune unity with each other. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And in that time, from eternity past, in ways that I can't even begin to comprehend, the Son had a purpose and meaning that would one day be fulfilled, that would one day break into human history, that would one day reveal himself in the, the, the form of a human baby. The identity of servants matters that from the womb, and it matters. We, Joe talked about this last week too, but I won't talk about it much, but it matters that this servant, this God, came in bodily form. It matters that Jesus came through the womb, that Jesus just didn't simply appear that one day they were walking in the road and all of a sudden the fullness of Jesus and all of it just appeared and said, here am I, I'm God in physical form. It matters that Jesus came from the womb. It matters for the sake of our sins. It matters for the sake of our temptations. It matters for the sake of God being able to connect us back to him because a human being knows our trials and temptations and walk through them perfectly. It matters because I need someone like me to pay the penalty that I owe. It matters that Jesus came in bodily form. It matters that he came through the womb. It matters that he came through the womb through being conceived by the Holy Spirit. It matters. This is his identity. This is who he is, that he came through the womb with a name already given to him, a purpose already given to him. We see in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, this prophesied in the book of Micah, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come one forth from me who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. This baby who came through Mary has been in existence for all time. There's never a beginning to Jesus. There is no end to Jesus. There's not even a beginning to the purpose of Jesus from his very existence. Whenever that was, there is no beginning to that. Jesus's purpose was to come and to rule and to reign and to bring a people for himself. And we see this purpose in Jesus. We see in Luke chapter 1 and verse 31 and 33. The angel coming to Mary and saying, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This servant who is to come is named even before as Jesus, the one who will come and save us from our sins, as Emmanuel, who is God with us, as we talked about in Isaiah 9, as Prince of Peace and all of those different things. This is Jesus. He came with an identity that is central to who he is, with an identity that is central to the work that he is doing. The identity of the, service is, of the servant is deeply important for us to recognize and to see. We see in verse 3, 
This identity has continued to be described. And he said to me, you are my servant. Yahweh said to this servant, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. I think this phrase is referring to Jesus as the true Israel. What Israel cannot be, this servant will be. Where Israel has failed, this servant will not. Where Israel has fallen short, this Israel will not. Will do everything on behalf of God's people that they were not able to do on their own. And in this servant, God will be glorified. We see down in verse 5. We see it repeated again. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. The identity of the servant is one who is honored in God's sight, whose role and purpose is to glorify the Father, to bring light and glory to the Father. We see in the beginning of uh, verse 7 there, it says, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. He has been called out. He has been chosen. He has been given purpose and meaning. This, the identity of the servant is crucial for us. That that is Jesus, the one who is to come. This servant, this Savior of Israel and the entire world knew where his identity lied. I want to be abundantly clear. What Isaiah is revealing here is not another prophet is not just another person like Isaiah who will come and say hard things that no one will listen to, who will die and be buried only to be replaced by another prophet who will say hard things and died and be buried and replaced again and again and again. This is no mere prophet that is coming. This is not Isaiah saying a better king is coming. The next generation, this one's not so great. Ahaz isn't so great. All the sons aren't so great. Maybe a better one will be the next one in in the line of kings. This is not Isaiah saying that a better king like us is coming from this. This is not just another king. This is not just another warrior or judge or priest. The identity of this servant is central to the entire story in Isaiah the entire story of the Bible, the entire story of all creation is centered on the identity of this servant, that he is Jesus, that the servant is the one who is the truest and realest thing that there is. Who is this servant? The servant is Jesus. The servant is Jesus, the son of God, the son of man, Emmanuel, Prince of Peace, Mighty God, Wonderful Counselor, Everlasting Father, the one who is and the one who was and the one who will be, the one who has come to save us from our sins, the first and the last, the suffering servant, the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sins of the world, the perfect and infinite prophet, priest, and king. The identity of the servant is Jesus And it is central that if this identity is anyone other than Jesus, the rest of the story falls apart. The rest of it is meaningless and hopeless and futile if we're just waiting for another Isaiah. If we're just waiting for another King David. If we're just waiting for another person like us who is slightly better than the one before. The identity of the servant matters. 
And here's what we see in this passage of Scripture, and we see as this servant is revealed over and over again, is that the world does not determine the identity of the Savior. Jesus knew who he was, knew what he was about, knew where he came from, knew what he was doing, knew what he was going, and allowed no one but his Father to determine who he was and what he was about to do. The world did not determine the identity of Jesus. Jesus determines his identity. And that's central to us. It's central to us because we are living in a world today. We've lived in a world for generation after generation that tries to redefine the servant. That tries to say, well, he's not really what you say that he is. He's not really the son of God. He wasn't really born of a virgin. He wasn't really died on the cross. He didn't really say all those things that he did. He didn't really exist at all. It was just a myth that was made up. This Jesus isn't really who you say that he is. And at the end of the day, Jesus says, I don't really care who you say I am. I am who I am. And this is the identity of the one that we serve. But Jesus is definitely concerned about who he is. And he lives out that identity day after day. And it matters to us. It matters to us that Jesus is, uh, understands who he is in identity, understands what he is all about, understands what he is called to do. It matters to us that Jesus confidently lives in that identity. It matters to us because I need to know where my identity lies. I need to know who I am. I've struggled every day of my life, and I would not think it's an exaggeration to say the same thing about you, to ask that question in the mirror, who am I really? With every day wrestling with, who am I supposed to be? Am I who my kids say that I am? Am I who my wife says that I am? Am I who the church says that I am? Am I the, who the world says that I am? Am I who I say that I am? Who am I? And my identity is something I think all of us wrestle with on a regular basis. And we're living in a world and a culture where your identity has been raised to God-like status who you say that you are, what you believe, what your sexuality is, who you vote for, all of what the color of your skin is. Your identity has been thrown to the front of everything that's most important about you. And I would agree with that, in part, that our identity is the most important thing about us. But the world does not determine that. God determines our identity. In the same way that God is determining the identity of the servant and revealing the identity of the servant, God reveals our identity as well. The truest thing about us is what God says about us. And I need you to hear that this I need you to hear that this morning. The truest thing about you is what God says about you. The world, your family, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors are going to try to desperately confuse you and distract you and to say things about yourself and ourselves. We are the guiltiest of trying to say we're something that God has not said about us. I am the guiltiest in trying to confuse myself about saying, Andy, this is who you really are. This is what's really true about you and ignoring what God says about me. It is desperately important that we get the identity of Jesus right because if we get that right, I can know who I am. 
I can know who I'm supposed to be. I can say yes to what God says, wants me to say yes to. Let me be very clear. I want you just to kind of hit a few people. Students, I've got kids in school and I am so tired of the wrestling that my kids have to do at times with figuring out who they are and the world trying to communicate to them who they are, what they should be, what they should be about, what they should think, who they should date, all of those things. It's exhausting to fight that battle, but it is a battle worth fighting. Students, listen to me clearly. You are not who your friends say you are. You are not who your teachers say you are. You are not what the internet says you are. You are not what Instagram says you are. You are not what Snapchat says you are. You are not what TikTok says you are. You are what God says you are. And you are fearfully and wonderfully made with purpose that is set to honor him. Moms and dads, moms specifically, you're not what the world says that you are. I'm sorry if you feel overlooked if you feel ignored, if you feel like you don't matter in your home, you are who God says that you are. Integral, integral and important to the life of your family. Dads, you are not what the world says that you are. I hate this as men. One of the first questions that we ask each other when meeting someone new, what is it, guys? What do you do? Who cares? Who cares what your dumb job is? I don't care. But we care so much, don't we? And we define our lives around who signs our paycheck. And it crushes us at times. Because we can't meet those standards. We can't keep up with that. Men, dads, you're not who your work says you are. You are not defined by the paycheck that you bring home. You are not defined by what the world says you should be doing as a man or not as a man. You are defined by God. Singles, you are not defined by who you might marry in the future. You are not defined by your relationship. Singles, God may have for good and great purposes to have you remain single for the rest of your life to the glory of God. And you are not less than because of that. You are not missing something because of that. You are in line with what God says for you. He defines you. It's so vitally important that we get this right because we all struggle with our identity. We, my family and I, most of you know, we went overseas this past summer. And when you're going overseas and you're going through airports, one of the things I had to tell my kids and myself to remind myself, we had to have our passports in hand all the time. Because we were readily checked for our ID over and over and over again. Whatever door, whatever passageway, whatever security thing, we had to check our ID over and over again. So many times we had to step into cameras and spend way too much time adjusting our heads slightly to be able to fit into the camera to get a real ID of who we are. Our identities had to be checked over and over again. It was exhausting but important. My challenge to us First and foremost, that we check the idea of Jesus over and over and over again. This is who you say you are. This is how you have revealed yourself to us. This is what the Bible says is true about who you are. And then we check our own idea on a regular basis. Is this who I truly am? 
Is this response in line with who I truly am as one who trusts in Jesus? Is this, is this desire or this attitude in line with who I am as one made in the image of God? That we continually check our identity. It matters. We see the identity of the servant here is central to this. It matters that it is Jesus. And then we move on for this and we see, number two, the calling of the servant. Now that we understand who this servant is, that it is Jesus, the next question we have to ask is, so what is the servant supposed to do? What is their calling? What is their action now that we know what they're supposed to do? We see in verse 2, it's revealed, he made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me like a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. The purpose of this servant is to be this sharp sword, to reveal the word of God. We see this um, picture being revealed in Scripture over and over and over again. This idea of a sword, of a sword coming out and, and, and going in, that this is revealing to be the word of God. The word of God going into us. Jesus himself is revealed that way. We see in Revelation 1 and verse 16, in his right hand, talking about Jesus, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. This is the word of God coming out from the servant, proclaiming the words of God, proclaiming a calling back to God, proclaiming repentance and salvation in the kingdom of God. His calling was to proclaim the words of God. His calling was to speak to the people the promises of God. His calling was to speak to the very heart, just like a sword can dig directly into our hearts, but the word of God is meant to dig directly into our hearts. And this is the calling of the servant. This is the calling of Jesus, to proclaim to us the words of God, to show to us that there's a living hope there, that there is joy there, that there is peace there. That this servant is hidden and protected and, and ready for precise use as we see this polished arrow and this, this sword being, being described in this way. And we see Jesus fulfilling that perfectly in John chapter 7, verses 45 to 46. It says, The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, talking about Jesus here, Why did you not bring him? The officers said, No one ever spoke like this man. And we see the Pharisees again and again and again. Nobody has spoken to us with the authority and the power that this man has spoken to us. Because we have never seen God in flesh before. And he is being revealed to us. And now the very words of God are coming with the authority because they are Jesus's very words. Because Jesus is God and proclaiming the words of God. The calling of the servant is to proclaim the words of God so that people will be gathered back to him. We look in verse 5. It says his purpose is to bring back Jacob, that Israel might be gathered to him. The purpose of the servant is to gather those who have gone astray, to bring back those who have turned away, to proclaim to them the promises and call them back to worship and to glorify the one who does not share their glory with another. This is what he is called to do. And this in itself seems like an impossible task, doesn't it? If you've read the book of Isaiah, it is one chapter after another of a proclamation of the word of God to a people who say, no thanks. We're good. We're going to go our own way. 
We kind of like our own little gods that we've created. We kind of like the sacrifices that we're making to ourselves. We kind of like living for ourselves over and over and over again. And it seems like an impossible task for this servant to bring back this one nation. To have a revival and a repentance among this one nation seems in and of itself an impossible task. But Jesus is up to the task. Jesus is sufficient for the task. But we read on in this passage of Scripture in verse 6 that that calling, as infinitely big as it is, is too small. Verse 6 says this. He says, God says to a servant, it's too light or too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach where? To the end of of the earth. This is where we get the bigger than we think idea. This is where we get the idea that Jesus is, is bigger than we can imagine. His calling is bigger than we can imagine. We see Isaiah again and again revealing to us where Israel needs to be, Judah needs to be, where the people of God need to be in the impossible task of bringing them back to himself. But God is revealing and reminding and showing not just the servant, but showing us that his purpose is far greater than this one per people. It is to the very ends of the age. And why does that matter? Why is that important? Why why can I have confidence in that? Because I've revealed already who this servant is. It is God himself. It is Christ coming in human flesh. And God can do immeasurably more than we all can ask or imagine. It is too big a task. It's too small a task. And for us today... But I want us to see clearly that bringing the nation, the servant bringing the nation back to God was not an unimportant task. It was very important, but it was too small. It was too small. God has something bigger and better in mind. In our lives, what has God called us to do? And are we fulfilling the thing out of our identity? Are we fulfilling the thing that God has called us to do? And is the thing that we're doing too small? And here's my answer to you, yes. (laughs) Because we can't imagine all that God is doing. We can't imagine the impact that God wants to have through our lives. We just last week came and Jordan came and shared to us about praying for the people of Tajikistan, right? For many of us, maybe never heard that, sounded like a made-up name, um, sounds like a, in a, a Tom Clancy novel, some fake country that was made up for them to fight. But it's a real place with real people, with real souls, with real needs. And for us, and we think to ourselves, and Jordan comes and asks us to pray for these people. And for us, it feels like maybe a, a too big a task. I don't know. But for some of us, it may feel like a small thing to pray for the people of Tajikistan. And it may feel like a small thing but we're praying to an infinitely big God who can do infinitely big things and can rescue the people of Tajikistan whenever he wants to, however he chooses to do so through his son, Jesus. And for us, whatever it is that you're doing, it is good for us to care about those who are in our house and to pray about those who are in our house and be concerned about those who are in our house. That is not an unimportant thing, but it might be too small. It is good for us to care about our jobs and to care about the people who are there. And it's not an unimportant thing, but it might be too small. 
It is good for us to care about the people in Covenant Church and to live our lives for them and to walk with life for them and to care for them. It is good for us to do those things. That is not an unimportant thing, but it might be too small. Our question for us is to ask, God, what are you pulling me into? What are you challenging me to do? Where are you pulling me forward? Where can I even have a vision to say, I'm leading my children in the right way so that Not just so they'll live good moral lives and have good jobs, but so that the people of Tajikistan might hear that there is a God who loves them. So that they might live their lives for something bigger than themselves. To invest in something bigger than themselves. And this is why Christ has come. This is why Christmas is so glorious. This is why it's so beautiful. This is why songs like Joy to the World are meaningful and true. This is why we don't sing Joy to Israel for God. We don't sing that. We sing Joy to the World. Because in God reaching the world, and God's bigness in reaching the world, and our care for Tajikistan and the people of the nations, guess who else is we are arms we are wrapping around? Those closest to us too. But if all we're doing is grabbing those things closest to us, we're missing all of this. So my challenge and my encouragement to us as we read Isaiah chapter 49 is to ask the question, God, is the thing that I'm doing too small a thing? And not that it's insignificant and not that it's unimportant. Please don't hear me say that. But is it too small? Can you trust God for something bigger? Can you trust God to do something more miraculous than you're giving him credit for? Can we say to the Lord, we've we've prayed this in our family over and over again, God, if I am requesting something too small from you, cancel my request and give me what you want to give me. Because I guarantee you I pray two small prayers two times. I limit God far too often and I want him to do what he wants to do. Why does it matter to us? And it matters to us because identity is not found in what we do. It's found in who we are. But if identity is rightly understood, it will compel us to action. It will compel us to obedience. It will compel us into our calling. If I truly understand who I am in Jesus and all that he has done for me, it will compel me to tell others about this Jesus, to step into others' lives. If I know that God has forgiven me in this way, I can forgive others. If I know that God has shown me mercy in this way, I can show mercy. If God has loved me in this way, I can show love. It propels me into obedience. Finally this morning, number three, the triumph of the servant. The triumph of the servant. This is a really weird verse in Isaiah 49. Especially when we know, if we're looking at verse four in the middle of this passage— especially when the servant is revealed as Jesus, it feels strange. And it feels a little uncomfortable. Verse 4 says, But I said, this is the servant speaking, this is Jesus, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. You should read that and be like, Whoa, that feels weird. The servant goes on to say, though, yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. The servant, this one called by God, 
looks for a moment and says, it's all for nothing. But the very next word says, but yet, surely, God will do what he says he's going to do. Surely, this is worth it. Surely, all those who rejected me and despised me and hated me and turned their backs on me, surely, that's going to be worth it. I want us to grab onto those two words, two really small words. They're not even Bible-y words. Yet and surely. Yet, because we see this twist, this, this, in this moment, it appears to be this, Yet, saying this, the reality seems this, yet there is a deeper reality, a more truer reality than what is showing up in front of my face, yet followed by surely, confidently, I believe this with everything in me, that there is something different than what I might be seeing in front of me in this moment. Jesus knows this. Hebrews chapter 12. Let's look to Jesus. He is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, seated at the right hand of the throne of God. We see this pushing forward in this. We see that Jesus, through the pain, through those who hated him and despised him and murdered him, said, I'm doing this for the joy that is set before me. Yet surely, on the other side of the cross, there is glory waiting for me. There is recompense waiting for me. There is reward waiting for me. There is glory waiting for me. Surely, it has to be there. And so because of that, surely, Jesus in the garden set his face towards Jerusalem and went to the cross. Because you recognize it was coming from Jesus. And we see Jesus in John chapter 17, confident of this. Jesus says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and that Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Jesus says, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Confidently, Jesus says, I have fulfilled the work you have called me to do, and I have glorified you in the way you have designed me to glorify you. Through all of the pain, through all of the suffering, The triumph of the servant comes through adversity, comes through despair, comes through all of those things, and comes out on the other side glorified and magnified and exalted exactly as the Father promised it would happen. This is still a hard verse. Because again, it applies to us. We look to our own selves. How do we do this? How do we keep moving forward? I've been in ministry now for over 20 years. And there have been countless times that I have wept before God and said, is it worth it? Is it worth the hurt? Is it worth the pain? Is it worth the rejection? Is it worth nobody listening? Is it worth, was it worth all of it? Is it worth it? I remember one several years ago, I was getting ready to preach Easter morning. One of the most glorious passages you can preach. And I remember lying on the couch in my living room, bawling my eyes out and saying, God, I don't want to go. It's not worth it. Nobody cares. Nothing is happening. The fruit is not there. It is empty. It is in vain. It's not worth it. 
I remember weeping again and again and again and crying out to the Lord, please help me. Had those conversations with myself over and over again. I guarantee you my family has had that conversation. Is it worth it that my dad is in this ministry, that we follow him from this place to that? Is it it worth it? Is it worth it for you to be obedient when the world says you are intolerant and uncaring and stupid and foolish and all of is it worth it is it worth it to keep praying for that family member who continually rejects the good news of Jesus again and again and again is it worth it yet surely my recompense my reward It's not with you. It's not with my wife. It's not with my kids. It's not on a paycheck. My recompense is with the Lord. And everything that I have done in faithfulness and obedience to the Lord will be a glory to him and will be rewarded in the end. And it's in those moments where I have to say, yet, surely, yet, surely, yet, surely. I don't feel this. I don't believe this. This seems foreign. This seems hard. This seems foolish. Yet, surely, my God will reward me. He is waiting to show me goodness for the faithfulness he has given to me. We as a church need to be reminded of that again and again and again, that through adversity and doubt, it is good and okay for us to, by faith, look to the Lord and say, this is pointless. The thing that I have just done, the thing I've worked so hard for, was a giant waste of time. Yet, surely, my trust is in you. I feel like all of this is meaningless and has only brought pain and sorrow, yet surely my joy and my recompense is with you. As we read last week in Isaiah chapter 9, the light is infinitely lighter than the darkness is dark. And the joy that is waiting for us is infinitely more joyful than the pain we're feeling right now. I don't know that in this moment sometimes. I don't believe that at all in the moment sometimes. I've had people tell me that in the moment and I tell them, shut up, it's not true. Don't talk to me about that. You don't know what's going on with me. You don't know the pain I'm suffering. You don't know how hard I've tried. Yet, surely. And for us this morning, we maybe just need to say to ourselves again and again and again, yet surely, yet surely, yet surely, it is worth all of this. You see in verse 7, the clearest picture of this as we close our time this morning. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nations, not ignored, abhorred, hated, by the nations, the servant of rulers, the one who is once abhorred, the flip side of that, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. Why? Because God is faithful and he's chosen you. And it goes back to identity. It circles back to our identity. Why can I have confidence that yet surely matters? 
Because God is faithful and because God has chosen me. That's why. Not because of what I'm doing. Not because of my efforts. Not because of any recognition that I get. Because God is faithful and because he has chosen me. Because in my identity as a follower of Christ, he has said, I will bring you home. I will reward you for what you're doing. The good that you do in my name will not go unnoticed. The suffering, the the things that you give up will be rewarded, multiplied to you through your faithfulness. We see in this, and as we celebrate with Christmas, as we celebrate all of these things again, I just want to remind us one more time, why does this matter to us? It matters because Christ came, we can know our true identity. My identity is not found in what anybody else says about me, including myself. It is found in what God says about me. And when I truly know who I am as created by God in Christ, I can live out my calling and take giant steps of faith and do the next bigger thing and continue to show up. Even when, and especially when, there are zero results for my effort. And especially when, not only when there's zero results for my effort, but when there are negative results for my effort. When there is hardship and persecution and hatred that comes from the things that I do. I can trust that one made by God in Christ, living out his calling, will be rewarded for what God has done. As I close this morning, I just want to read to you from Galatians chapter 6 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let's pray. Brother God, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. We thank you for this song of the servant, the servant who... We see as you, Jesus, set apart and called and given to us and from eternity past, knowing that this was the purpose and the plan, being revealed to us in the fullness of time as one born of a virgin, born to demonstrate grace and kindness to us, born to live the life that we cannot live, born to die the death that we cannot die, born to be raised from the dead, born to return, to gather not just the nation of Israel to himself, not just those in Israel who turn in faith and repentance, but all, that all nations who turn in repentance and faith and place their trust in you, Jesus, will be gathered back home. God, help us. When we forget who we are, help us. When, we, when our, our vision for our calling grows smaller and smaller, help us. When we want to give up, help us. It is in you and you alone that we find hope. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with us as we sing this final song.